Hello, and welcome to Highlands Church Audio Sermons. Today, September 2nd, 2018, we continue our series titled, Knowing Truth, The Letters of John. Today's sermon, Knowing Our Advocate, is going to be taught to us by Pastor Jeff Stevens out of 1 John chapter 2, verses 1-2. through 2. Enjoy! In a world of disagreements, large and small... I don't believe that you exist. Go think whatever you want. Go ahead. How can a good and powerful God allow innocent people suffer unspeakable tragedies? But then there's all these questions, you know, about ethics and moral issues as well. And I would say, well, they're crazy for not testing what they think they believe. Just because you can't see it doesn't mean it's not real. It's as real as what you see. And, and I begin with the assumption that God is love. And love is love is love is love. I think that the orthodox, historic Christian tradition is this vast, diverse conversation that's been going on for thousands of years. We really know our advocate. And I'm going to explain why that sometimes presents a concern uh, to me, especially. And maybe you can relate to it. But the first time I ever heard the gospel was in 1981. Uh, my family never darkened the door of a church. And I got invited to this camp uh, with a bunch of my peers. And I heard the gospel message for the first time. And I can say that. Um, I prayed that prayer. I, um, I walked to the front um, at the end of that, uh, that time at camp. But with high insight, not really when at the moment, but with high insight now, I can look back and recognize that my life didn't really change at that moment. And maybe you can relate to this. Some of you maybe a time in your life where uh, you kind of took about more of a double life. I was certainly a Christian amongst church and amongst my church friends, but I was still the same old Jeff with my non-church friends. The confrontation of this was a leader of mine who kept saying to me, Jeff, many will say to me on that day, quoting John, or quoting uh, Matthew and saying, saying, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we do all these great things in your name? And then Jesus' retort is, depart from me, you who practices lawlessness. I never knew you. So as much as today we're here discovering what does it mean to know Christ as our advocate, we're also examining whether or not really does Christ in fact know me as an individual. Thomas spoke about it last week in the form of light and darkness. My confrontation with this is an extraordinary confrontation, and and it doesn't necessarily take, and I hope and pray that your confrontation with a double life um, is never as severe as mine was. But my father is the one who used to always say that as a boy, I only understood him when I was lifted three feet off the ground. I was a stubborn and an obstinate child. Now I'm just a stubborn and obstinate adult. But you start to realize in your life that God brings certain things to reveal things to us, to show us plainly. And in this case, I was not living in the light. I was living in the dark. In May of 1988, a man came out of a car as I was pulled up out front of my office thanking an administrative assistant for staying late and typing a presentation for me. And the first man out of this rusted out Monte Carlo came out and he pressed a gun literally to my forehead. The second man out of the vehicle pressed the gun into my rib cage. 
The third man that was driving the vehicle held the gun across the hood of his car, pointed at me. I was covered. They insisted upon us giving both my administrative assistant and myself to give everything that we had in possessions to them. And before I could even grasp really what was going on, her car began to back out. And, the, uh, and one of the men had, was taking her and her car. And I remember saying to the man, you don't need to take the girl. That was the first of four hits of being pistol whipped that, in that exchange. So they took her and they left. And soon, the man who had the gun pointed at me across told the other guy who was pointing the gun right at me, now you do what you're supposed to do. This did not seem like encouraging words of what was going to happen. And so that man drove away, leaving me alone with one gunman. That gunman put me on my knees. He said to get down on my knees, to put my hands behind my head. And he approached me from behind and he pressed the gun to the back of my head and he cocked the trigger. All I could hear was my, my leader telling me, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all these great things in your name? See, what's frightening about that Matthew passage is that he's talking to church people. John here today is talking to church people. And he wants to drive this advocacy of Christ home. Now, by God's grace in that moment, a moment that I thank God all the time for, I'm so grateful that May of 1988 brought this event to me because it revealed to me that I did not walk in the light. I was walking in darkness. By the grace of God, that man suddenly just backed away from me. He got in my car and he drove away. The young lady who was a few miles away was, was ultimately released with no harm. And by the grace of God, we both survived. Two of those three men went to jail for what they'd done. And I often joke about it because for me, I'm just odd when it comes to dark humor. But the, the fact of the matter is I was still on my knees with my hands there as he pulled away in my car and I noted how many felonies this guy has just committed, right? Grand theft auto, robbery, burglary, right? He's pistol whipped me. He held me up at gunpoint. He kidnapped a woman. And I'm so thankful that he came to a complete stop at that red light outside my office and turned his blinker on. There were no traffic violations in the entirety of that event. <laughs> but we come to this moment of understanding. Last week, Thomas talked about walking in the light or walking in the dark. I want us to know that those events, the light and the darkness, are mutually exclusive. You either walk in the light or you walk in the dark. There is no fence straddling. You can't live in two worlds. You cannot say you serve the Prince of Peace, but actually report to the Prince of Darkness. It's important for us to understand that as we look at his word today in this section of 1 John uh, 2, 1 and 2, that what John is doing is he's going to hunker down after saying that you make God a liar if you tell him that you don't sin. 
And he's going to start with this preface of my little children. But I want this illustration in your head. Thomas and I were talking later in the, in, after he had spoken. And we, we talked about this. What does it really mean? How would you describe the light? And I thought an illustration that he said to me in my office was great. He says, imagine if you had a lantern on one side of the room. In the closeness of proximity is the closeness you are to the person of Jesus Christ. But there's an element of being far from the light. In fact, we do this all the time. We often want to ask the question, how much can I continue to sin but yet still be in the light? And maybe for some of you yet still, you haven't recognized that you think you're living in the light like me, but you really reside in the darkness. You can see the light off in the distance. And we can't confuse that light as walking in the light. So what we're going to uncover today here is five particular truths that John's going to lay out in two verses, and I'm going to leave you with three particular tests so that you can examine whether or not you walk in the light or do you walk in the darkness thinking you're in the light. See, my greatest fear in life for any person who's a part of church and professes to be a Christian is that you too will stand before him and you will plead with him, Lord, Lord. You'll point to that great Hebraic of using the person's name twice, pointing that you have an intimate relationship with the person of Jesus Christ. But Jesus' response is, depart from me, you who practices lawlessness. You see, this person thought they had an intimate relationship with Jesus, but he says, depart from me. And he says, because I never knew you. In our self-examination, is, in part, is do you know Jesus Christ? But in the other part of it is, does Jesus Christ have an intimate relationship with you? And we're going to look at how John starts to unfold this. Turn, if you would, to 1 John 2, verses 1 and 2. <coughs> John starts by transitioning from light and dark, and he wants to hunker in specifically on a, a group of distinction, and he says, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if you, anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Let me pray as we walk through these five truths of knowing the advocate. Our Father and our God, Lord, we thank you for your word, for your truth, for the clarity you give us through the Apostle John. Help us, Lord, to truly just grow in your grace and the understanding of our advocate. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen. Point number one of my little children. Number one, it is a term of endearment to true light walkers. He's wanting to grab the attention of those who truly walk in the light. He, of course, by putting the personal pronoun on the front, is pointing it to his authority as an apostle, as the pastor, or as a person who is tenderheartedly communicating this beauty that he's going to unfold. 
He narrows the audience, even though he's still talking to the heretics and the Gnostics that are within that church. But he wants to hunker in and he wants to give this blessed assurance to the ones that are true followers of Christ. We see this modeled for us in Acts 2, 42, when it says, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. These four pillars of the early church leave for us a distinguishing mark that we must, in fact, surrender ourselves and submit ourselves to the very word of God. John's trying to drive this point, especially with Gnosticism, this group of people that thought that, well, I just have this kind of elitist understanding of knowledge, and I know what I know because I know what I know, rather than going back to the apostles' teaching or to the word in its entirety. Or Galatians 4.19, we see Paul use an example here. He says, my little children, for whom I am again in anguish of childbirth, until Christ is formed in you. You see, what John is ultimately trying to get across is he wants to know how Christ is forming in you, how you're growing and maturing in Christ, if in fact you are a little child. He's going to mention children uh, uh, eight more times. Seven of them are all the same as a term of endearment. And the, and the eighth one is pointing to the maturity of the believer, the immaturity of the believer. The second truth here is a call to not sin. Sometimes this kind of seems like, wow, if I'm not supposed to sin, then I think that I'm going to have a really hard time entering the kingdom of heaven. If the actual calling to be into heaven, to be face to face with God, as Hebrews says, right, to pursue peace and holiness, right, perfection, without which no one will see the face of God. If the requirement is perfection and we're going in that door with my perfection, then there's a bad answer coming. But if we're entering in with the Savior's righteousness, it's well done, good and faithful servant. Paul, or John, gives the point as to why he's writing this. He says, I'm writing these things to you, right, my little children, so that you may not sin. See, 1 John 1.7 has already explained to us, he says, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, right? The close, the proximity to the light is what matters here. We have a fellowship, as Thomas said, a common union, or koinonia is the Greek word that's used there, with not only one another, but also and the blood of Jesus, his son, who cleanses us from all sin. So if you are a child of God, if you have an advocate of Christ, then you stand before holy God as cleansed. You're holy and perfect in the eyes of God the Father, and we'll look at that here in just a minute. Or 1 John 1, 9, he says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So why the command to not sin? Why not just say, go sin a little? You see, we can't, in fact, expect a holy God to ever call us to anything other than perfection. To be holy because he is holy. But there is a constraint within us, right? We look at John 5, 14. 
Afterward, it says, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, see you are well, sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. Or the woman caught in adultery in John 8, 11. She, uh, she said, they, they were saying, they all walked away. You remember that, that picture, right? When Jesus says, says uh, let he who is without sin cast the first stone. And she is pointing to the fact that no one condemned her. And she says, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go and from now on, sin no more. Jesus is never, ever going to call you to sin a little. But see, for those of us who live in the light, we know that we continue to sin. We know that the Greek word here for sin, uh, harmatano, is actually pointing to singular sin. That we continue to repeat singular acts of sin. And we sit there and sometimes wonder, we're like Paul in Romans 7, I do the very thing that I don't want to do. We find ourselves in this difficult place. But we need to know that not only is the Apostle John saying, don't sin, God himself is still saying, don't sin. The third truth is this. But if you do sin, what? Let's just stop for a second and thank God for the glorious word, but... Because he says, but if anyone does sin, what do I need to know? We have an advocate. This could be one of the most glorious places of Scripture. Because it brings to us the very hope of knowing that we have an advocate. It's a significant clause here. It indicates that John's conviction that acts of sin implies that it's singular. Because the way that he places it is he could have used a completely different word here. But he wanted to point to these single acts of sin as opposed to or as contrasted by a continual or a perpetual state of sin. I'll show you, because he uses that word when he gets to 1 John 2, 2, he changes the word from, from, from harmatano to harmati. And he wants to drive a point here of what Christ is advocating for, what he's propitiated for. And it's important for us to understand that if you are, in fact, a new creation in Jesus Christ, you have an advocate. And what's implied here is the bad end. That's the good news, right? The bad news is if you don't walk in the light with Jesus Christ, you have no advocate. The thought is a singular act or a nature into which the believer is oftentimes carried through his nature and contrasted with his habitual sin. The provision here is that God has made for the sinning Christian a two-part play. It's found in the advocate. The word that he used for advocate here is parakletos, as opposed to just using it as paraclete. The paraclete is the Holy Spirit, who in fact is the one who is, 
is an ambassador or an advocate of Christ to the world. But what John's saying here is that Jesus is an advocate to the person who walks in the light. As Paracletus. He also wants to point us to why we need an advocate. So that brings the fourth truth, our judge and our advocate. He says that we need an advocate, or we have an advocate, with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. The advocate here is not the comforter of the Holy Spirit. It's the Paracletus who is called alongside us. You see, we need to understand that in the contemporary sense, Jesus is in fact our lawyer. God the Father is our judge. And the Christ or the Messiah is your savior. His righteousness is his case as payment for what the sinner deserves, which is the wrath of God. How many of you know that you're on trial? In that trial, you have a lawyer. You have a judge. You also, in fact, as John doesn't say in 1 John or in his epistles, he says in Revelation, he says, he defines who your accuser is. Who's the plaintiff? And he says in Revelation 12, 10, he says, and I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ, in other words, his Messiah, have come for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down in this great, the glorious moment where, where God throws Satan down into the very pits of hell who accuses them day and night before God. Do you realize that Satan himself is standing before God the Father in some capacity and is saying, did you see him sin? Did you see him sin? See, they're not following you. See, they're not following you. They're following me, the prince of darkness. See, they're not following you, God. You see that? They're disobedient. They're an obstinate and disobedient people. They're not following you. And then your lawyer stands up and says, but I paid for it. I did it. My righteousness. I took the wrath of God that was due for them upon myself. And I have given them back this great exchange as Brendan talked about. I exchanged their sin for my righteousness. And God the Father says, not guilty. Not because of anything within ourselves, right? We can have this blessed assurance of Romans 8, 1, right? There is what? Therefore, now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Praise the Lord for that. We have to understand continually that Jesus is our advocate. If the believer were to sin again, he does not need another justification from God the Father. You have been declared once and for all if you are in Christ Jesus and Christ is in you, not guilty. You have a perpetual advocate who's giving this testimony every time Satan himself stands before the Father and says, did you see it? He did it again. She did it again. They did it again. Yeah, still not guilty. Okay, objection. Still not guilty. This continues on because you have an advocate. This advocacy of Jesus Christ, the righteous. 
It is a composite expression indicating Jesus' human nature, his messianic office as the Christ and his righteous character. One commentator said, the picture is your lawyer standing before the Father on your behalf. The case is not of love pleading for justice. Know that God, that Jesus is not pleading for justice. Oh, how we pray. He never pleads for justice on us. But he's asking for an injustice because he is standing there as righteous and he is justice that is pleading with love for our release. That's the advocate that we have. Fifthly, this truth. What he advocates for, and by default, what he doesn't. It says he is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the world, the whole world. The Greek word here is halasimus. It's translated propitiation, right? It's the closest word we get to an atoning sacrifice. The Old Testament kept referring to it as atonement. We have the day of atonement, Yom Kippur. We have this atonement where once a year you can go and make sacrifice with bulls and goats and the high priest would enter into the Holy of Holies and be an advocate on your part with the atonement right, the scapegoat. He would literally lay hands upon the back of a goat and he would cast the sins of you and me of, of ignorance, the sins of ignorance upon the goat and he would cast the goat to outer darkness outside of the city limit. It's where we get the term scapegoat. But we have a savior, we have a Messiah who has come and he's advocating propitiation this nickel word just means to satisfy wrath. Something has satisfied the wrath that's due unto you and to me. Look at it in 1 John 4.10. He says, in this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. You know the one thing when Jesus was being marched, right before he was in the garden, he was praying to God the Father, and he said, your will be done, but your will be done. If there's any way this cup could pass. The cup was the wrath cup. In a sense, what Jesus was saying is, I'll take the nails, I'll take the beating, I'll take the mockery, I'll take the crown of thrones. I will take all that, I'll take the spear of the side, I'll do all of that stuff, but please, Please, don't make me take the wrath of God the Father. And see, just like my story of understanding, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, right? That Lord, Lord, that Hebraic, right? We see it in the Old Testament when the burning bush and Moses appears before the burning bush and God through the burning bush says, Moses, Moses, pointing, God's pointing to his intimate relationship he's had with Moses before the very foundation of the world. Or Abraham, as he's about to plunge the knife into his son Isaac upon the altar, and the angel of the Lord appeared and says, Abraham, Abraham. 
Oh, what a blessing it is for us, right? That Jesus not only took the wrath of God upon himself, but as he did so, he cried out and he said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Why are you purposely ignoring me at this moment of such pain and anguish, not from the excruciating death upon the cross, but because for that moment in time, he was taking upon himself, he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf so that he could propitiate, so he could satisfy the wrath of God that was due unto you and to me. We start to realize the guilt or the imputation of sin in Hebrews 9.26. It says, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he, Jesus, has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Or 2 Corinthians 5.21, which I've already said, which is, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin. God did that so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. You see, Jesus advocates his sacrifice, not our good works in the church. He's not standing before the Father and saying, oh, but look at how hard he or she is trying Right? We're not going to stand before Jesus one day with a pouty lip and say, I just didn't understand. No, you're going to go before a holy God and the requirement to enter into the kingdom of heaven is your dependence upon the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He is our advocate. And if you, by default, walk in the dark, I have bad news to go with the good news. If you walk in the dark, you have no advocate. There is no one pleading your case. The accuser has full range to point to your sin and there's no one who has paid for your sin. This is why Jesus says, depart from me, you who practices lawlessness. And in the most frightening of ways because the people he's talking to are church people. You see what John's doing here is he's building for us a test. And it comes when we start to examine this word propitiation. So I want to, I want to lay out for you in this, in this process, what does propitiation mean? First, there's the need for propitiation. The need for propitiation is not seen in our sins by itself. But concerning our sins, namely in God's uncompromising hostility towards sin. Jonathan Edwards, probably one of his more famous sermons of all time, is sinners in the hands of an angry God. Because it was just bold, in-your-face truth of understanding that God in his holiness, in his righteousness, is not pleased with his creation in the sense where they're where they're living in a constant and continual state of sin with nothing to advocate and nothing to clean, clean them up. So he offers his cleansing blood for us to have that. These concepts are not foreign to John. He doesn't mention the wrath of God in this, in 1 John. He does, of course, in his gospel 
In John 3, 36, he says, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. So belief must be important. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. You see, the condition of the unbeliever is death, which is the result of sin. John, 1 John three fourteen. we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. So there needs to be a love for one another. What John's doing is he's describing tests. Last week, Thomas talked about this word life. It's, again, the Greek word koinonia. It's common union with God, and it's available only in the person of Jesus Christ. Secondly, both verses indicate that the nature, right, in 1 John 2, 2 and in 1 John 4, right, verse 10, both of these verses, God sent his son as the atoning sacrifice, the thing that satisfied the wrath. No direct mention of his death. John already covered this in 1 John 1, 7, the virtue of his sacrificial death. He died the death, which was the just reward for our sin. Something had to pay. Something had to satisfy the wrath, and it required a perfect and spotless lamb. 1 John 4.10, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. This was so in the Old Testament days since the propitiatory offerings were divinely instituted and prescribed as a means by which sinners might be forgiven. The difficulty of it is, is that these sins that were forgiven in the Old Testament were sins of ignorance, not sins of willful disobedience. This is what he means when Christ died for all sin. Not all sin with all people without exclusion, but all sin as it pertains specifically to the person who walks in the light. That he not only satisfied the wrath for your sins of ignorance, he satisfied the wrath of God for your sins of willful disobedience and has made you the righteousness of God. We see it again. The arrangement, we have to understand, is not a human arrangement like Yom Kippur was, but it's a divine gift. So without the sacrifice of Christ, God gave his son as the result of his love. We know that, John 3, 16 verse. But 1 John 4, 10 says it this way. This is the love, that he loved us and sent his son as propitiation for our sins. It's important that we understand that it says he is the propitiation. He is propitiation. He's not aspiring to be. He didn't propitiate. It's pointing to the very character of Jesus Christ and saying that he is propitiation. He is what's being offered. He is what's being advocated. He is what is telling the Father, it's me. I paid for it. There can therefore be no question of human beings appeasing an angry deity with our works or our self-righteousness. The Christian propitiation is so radically different, 
not only in the character of divine anger, but by the means by which he propitiated. It is an appeasement of the wrath of God by the love of God through the gift of God. The initiative is not taken by us, nor even by Christ, but by God himself in sheer unmerited love. His wrath is averted, not by any external gift that we have to offer, but by his own self-giving to the death of a sinner. The one who knew no sin became sin. Powerful words the apostle of love. But you can hear a slight hint of the son of thunder in his words, can you not? It's blunt. It's straightforward. It's truth with a capital T. He wants his little children to know the difference. What differentiates you from those who live in the dark? Because the person who lives in the light is moving as closely as they possibly can to the light itself rather than asking the question, how far can I be on the outside of the light and still sin but still live inside of the light? You can't live in both worlds. You're either a child of the light or you're a child of the darkness. I'm going to leave you with three particular tests for yourself to examine these things. First is the doctrinal test. The doctrinal test Do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God who came in the flesh, the Word that became flesh and dwelt among us? That's your doctrinal test. The second test I call the ethical test. Does your life reflect growing obedience to Christ? Are you moving closer and closer to the light in your obedience? Not that you're becoming less of a sinner, but that you're just growing in your awareness of your sinful desires. And you're allowing the holiness and the perfection of God to reveal your sin in contrast to the beauty and the loveliness of a holy God. Third test, the relational test. Does your life reflect a growing and practical love for others? Do you see people as things that get in your way? Or do you see people as an opportunity to love and minister to them with the truth that Jesus Christ propitiated? He satisfied the wrath for not only our sins, our little holy huddle here, but also for other churches and other people in the world. You see, John's not making a declaration in 1 John 2, 2 that that Christ satisfied the wrath for all humanity without exclusion. He's saying, brothers and sisters, you're going to have to get out of your holy huddles, right? That old joke, right? Jesus taking you through the heaven and he says, hey, shh, be quiet as we go through here. This is the Baptist section. They think they're the only ones here, so let's just move it along. Right? I become a Baptist at every wedding because I refuse to dance. But that's a different story. We have to understand, right? There's other people in the Lamb's book of life. It would have been wonderful if God would have just produced a copy of the Lamb's book of life to us and we could have just simply done a roll call. 
Where's Bob? Okay, Bob, good, you're in. It would be wonderful, but he didn't. He wants you dependent upon him. He wants you faithful and obedient to his word. He wants you to die unto yourself to see others as better than yourself. He wants you to sacrifice those things, not to earn your way into the heaven of God, but to know that Jesus Christ is your advocate. And he is telling God the Father, as the accuser is saying, sinner, sinner, sinner. And he is putting before the Father and saying, not guilty because of my righteousness that I paid and the wrath of him that I took and put upon me. Praise God for that, right? Because without it, there is no hope. Oh, how we need this advocate, this attorney who's pleading our case daily, not because we are perfect, but because he is. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for your, um, your work and your righteousness in our lives. We thank you that you advocate for us. Lord, we come to you and we don't wish to pretend that we're the ones who are laying crowns upon your head, but we want to praise you that you have the crown upon your head. You are the King of kings. You are the Lord of lords. Oh, how I pray, Lord, that even those souls who are in here today, who are questioning whether they live in the light or whether they live in the dark, that they would know that they live in the light or that they would frankly know that they live in the dark. Oh, as your word tells us, to be completely hot for you or completely cold for you. For you say so crassly, if you're lukewarm, I vomit you out of my mouth. Oh, how you desire an intimate relationship with us if we will merely believe in the advocate and put our whole trust and rest our entire weight upon him. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen. Praise God, right? He is our glory. He's the glory of everything. He's the king of glory. It's his victory. May we find ourselves at this week, right, to love one another, to obey his word, and to give all the glory to him. Amen? Amen. Amen.